Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's for us to really navigate the territory that we're in. The challenge is that we find ourselves sometimes wanting to get to the perfect version of that fairly rapidly, right? So the 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 consequence of that can sometimes be like based on what you just shared the underlying thing that occurred to me as you were sharing it was just our desire for perfection is so strong and our desire to complete the cycle is so strong and our desire to and I, and I'm like you as well our desire to attain that that perfection and that peace is so strong that um sometimes if that is the overriding desire that that can also be um a very difficult thing to input into a system to try to optimize for. So what if karma, let's take that example, and I know we're just riffing here, but what if karma is supposed to be a slow and painful process, right? Like for you to really feel it. Like it's so strange to say it. All right, LookUp listeners, welcome back to another episode of the LookUp podcast. It's your host, Mark Weinstein, and as always, thank you for listening along. We are at January 24th, 2021, after I've taken a long hiatus uh, for the holidays and the end of the year. A lot of changes in my life, moving to a new uh, state, uh, traveling a little bit. And everything is good on my end. It's great to be back uh, delivering content to all of you. I'm so excited for the slate of guests that I've already lined up this year. And this episode is no exception. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to comment if you've been following uh, the Lookup Weekly, it's lookup.substack.com. And I write a weekly newsletter where I include our uh, podcast content plus uh, what I'm reading for the week, as well as a short blog post that could range from anything like a sci-fi short story to uh, ramblings about U.S. politics and culture or economics and blockchain, a bunch of different things, whatever is interesting me or tickling my fancy that week. But last week I wrote about um, the inauguration day and my concerns that there might be violence. And I'm happy to say that uh, there was not. And so, you know, I also have the tendency to overthink things sometimes and so appreciate that that didn't turn out the way I had expected. And I feel very grateful and uh, excited for uh, our country. Hopefully we can find some reconciliation here. But that is not what this episode is about. This episode is a conversation that I recorded in December, just before Christmas, with a man named Arif Khan. Arif is the founder and creator of a company called Aletheia AI, which is actually now one of my personal portfolio companies. After this conversation, I immediately asked Arif if he had uh, availability in his investment round because I just find him to be so insightful and what they're working on to be so critical. Um, Arif is a veteran of the Singapore Armed Forces. He went on to create a career in large technology companies like Grab, which is um, 
for those of you not familiar, it's kind of like the Uber of Southeast Asia and, and I believe Japan. LinkedIn, where he led Southeast Asia development. And his previous company, SingularityNet, uh, was the creator of Sophia the Robot. Um, and I don't know if you've seen Sophia, but she's this AI robot that has made many public appearances. And Arif was responsible for a lot of um, a lot of that. He's taken his work with SingularityNet to the next level, in my opinion, with Aletheia. And Aletheia is a platform for building AI avatars. The company's mission is to democratize CGI and enable creators, developers, and fans to create expressive, intelligent, and interactive AI. But there's so much more to it than that. I mean, we are uh, entering a, a place now with synthetic media, which Arif will explain in the episode where we can see, or also known as deep fakes, um, new types of content forming where we have an artificial intelligence that is mimicking an existing person. Uh, and it might be unrecognizable to the human eye. And so we are at kind of this edge of the philosophy of technology uh, and how to build it and the ethics of building artificial intelligence. And so we really dove into uh, those concepts specifically on this episode. We talked about the edge of the metaverse, uh, the meaning of human level intelligence and how we define consciousness. We spoke about karma and the potential of a simulation uh, that we're all already living in. We wondered out loud whether humans were deterministic or if we can alter our own programming. Uh, dove into the CIA's obsession with the occult through their remote viewing research. And of course, talked about the importance of actually using blockchain-based technology for identity when it comes to building artificial intelligence characters in the metaverse uh, there's so much more here from the wisdom of crowds to mimetic meaning of names and whether or not an artificial intelligence relationship in the metaverse is as beneficial as a human to human relationship. Um, I could go on for a long time here, but suffice it to say, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope Arif will come back on the show one day. I'm sure the company's going to do phenomenally well. Uh, it's, he's building with an eye towards, towards ethics, right? And towards agency for the individual owners of content and creators um, to have a, sp a safe space, essentially. So without further f interruption from me, first episode of 2021, we've got more coming your way. This is Arif Khan. Arif, Thank you so much for coming on the Look Up podcast today. I really appreciate it. Uh, if we were doing video, you'd probably be recording as uh, as an AI avatar, no? <laughs> yeah, we're we're getting there. We're getting closer to that simulated reality where we won't be able to distinguish what is real or what is uh, fake, right? But then again, were we ever able to? <laughs> oh, this is going to be a fun one. I like that. Um, Yes, I, I, and let's talk about, let's talk about that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, if we look today at the world um, and we look at our sense-making capacities and our meaning-making capacities, they are under assault, right? Like largely just because of the different narratives that are wanting to live rent-free in our heads, like as mimetic spaces that just control our thoughts, right? So we have to find ways of making meaning 
that is as closely aligned to truth as possible so that we can live meaningful lives. The challenge here is just, as a society, we have not yet understood what is true or what is false, even about ourselves. Uh, the example I like to give is you can have the best and the greatest institutions come together, agree on a completely false statement and go to war and kill hundreds of thousands of people, right? Like, let's say the 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 Iraq war, that's exactly what happened. And you had, you know, major newspapers like the New York Times that ran stories after stories claiming that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And then you had Colin Powell with the I think you also had George Tenet back then, the CIA director, in the shot when they were presenting the facts as they were, right? With all mm. of the pictures to the UN making the case. And as the Chinese sort of uh, ambassador or, or to the UN was looking on just suspiciously, they were trying to really understand what the reason for all of this was. And so we have the meta-narrative, which is controlled by many, many people and mm. shared with us. And then we have this new emerging technology that is coming up to they call synthetic media. Right. And so, like, how does that live within that space when the truth itself isn't really clear today? Right. What is synthetic media? Yeah, synthetic media really is just I like to just simplify it and say, like, have you tried impossible burger like synthetic meats? Right. So, like, it tastes as good as as a real thing. Um, uh, it tastes as good as a real thing. And uh, uh, it, it sounds and feels like the real thing as well. Right. Synthetic media is just AI generated media where it looks as if it is human, sounds as if, as if it is human, but it is fundamentally generated by AI algorithms. And so the best type of synthetic media crosses what is called the uncanny valley. It, it makes mm. you feel as if you're talking to a real human. Uh, it's, not, uh, it, it's not giving you that effect that you're talking to someone um, uh, that, uh, that is not human. Right? So the interaction, the engagement, the higher levels of uh, uh, possible emotional connection become really real. So if you look at what Siri and Apple have been doing with their voices, the first version of those voices were really sort of uh, stiff, right? But then if you, we as consumers have not noticed it, but then the voices are actually becoming more realistic. So take that further and you live in a science sort of science fiction sort of world where the movie Her is actually possible, right? So, so that's how movie. far this goes, yeah. <laughs> So can you describe just in more detail kind of the uncanny valley and where we are technologically in relation to that? Um, are we, have we crossed the chasm? Have we crossed the valley or, or what? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the pandemic has certainly accelerated the desire to interact with more realistic, photorealistic characters, photorealistic avatars, photorealistic representations, right? So um, there is that strong desire to connect and make meaning, right? And that's a fundamental human need. Um, and so the pandemic has certainly accelerated that. Whether the technology has caught up to it is only a matter of time. With, for example, in just the past year, the advent of GPT-3, um, we've seen, for example, really realistic synthetic dialogue, text-based output that is so compelling that I mean, there's a, there's a startup that I really like as well. What is, uh, what is GBT3 for the listeners? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So GBT3 is a state-of-the-art language model mm. that is developed by OpenAI. And OpenAI is, uh, well, it started off as a non-profit foundation, but then now I think is a for-profit uh, enterprise that has a significant partnership with Microsoft. And GPT 3 basically is a text generator that can generate human-like text that sounds like like a human being uh, that can also reason, that can also have an analogy. So if you think of like earlier versions of this technology, they were like IBM Watson, 
or chatbots, right? At a very basic level, they would interact with you. Hi, Mark, how are you doing? What's your temperature today? Simple things like that, and you'd get an interaction back. But GPT-3 takes that much further. GPT-3 can perhaps even, if you train if you train the model correctly and if you give it the right parameters and you tune it properly, you can really sound like the person that you're training it on. So let's say if I wanted to bring back an important philosopher like Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> Great day for that. Bitcoin at new all-time highs. And this is the Satoshi Nakamoto is the creator of Bitcoin for all of you. Uh, pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's, that, that pseudonymous intersection is also going to be fascinating, right? Like, but then like, let's say just, just on GPT-3 to close the thread there, it's just the value of that is you could actually train a model that sounds like Satoshi based on his forum writings and posts and based on the white papers that he wrote. I think there should be enough material out there. But the problem with Satoshi was he never had an avatar. He never put a face to his name. Not the problem, actually, the, 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 the unique feature, not a bug of his entire, um, of the entire uh, mandate was just that they were able to pull this off in a way that uh, that pseudonymity allowed an invention like that to to come into the world, and today that pseudonymity is actually a key killer feature, right? So if you look at charismatic CEOs in large companies, sometimes like everything aggregates to their ego, right? The entire attention must must focus on that uh, focus on that core personality that's the driving force, and that charis that charismatic sort of CEO persona is something that is embedded in our culture today. The main thing, though. With pseudonymity and what Satoshi did there was um, was was transform the way new technology can be invented, and then that's really exciting. Quite, let's let's go back because we're covering we're covering a lot of ground fairly fast. But with GPT three, um, what is it? Is it the Turing test that determines whether or not you um, whether or not we've achieved kind of um, an AI that is comparable to human intelligence? Yeah, yeah, there, there have been there have been several attempts at finding the right test, right? So, like the 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 word test is also uh, interesting. The the there is, for example, in in that sentence, there's a lot to unpack, right? So, the first level is to really understand what is human, right? And like what is human level intelligence? And that's that's already well, we have a, no idea. Yeah, that's that's I already mean, a huge that's... challenge, right? Because we we, <laughs> we don't really are AI avatars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Let's we might real. like no exactly what you were you saying, Mark. Is just the the challenge there is that um, I mean when when Elon Musk was asked like if he were to speak with a with a really intelligent AI, what would he ask it? He replied and said what's outside the simulation, right? So like there is, there is genuine thinking around um, the, there is genuine humility today that I did not see before around how little we know about our minds and consciousness. So previously that, that certainty, that scientific certainty and dogma was very, very, um, very, very concretely sort of, but there were really uh, four walls around this. But I think today with the advent of, um, different modalities of perception. I think people are more interested in uh, trying to really understand what the what 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 it means to be human, right? So human level intelligence is already fairly complex, and now from that perspective, we want to determine whether an AI can live up to it. What seems to be fairly clear is that humans there are certain rudimentary functions that we have that if we can get an AI to replicate, 
uh, it can at least replicate it, but does it really deeply understand the meaning of something, right? So, so a human being can say an apple is red, right? And the AI might be able to come to that same conclusion by using, using computer vision uh, to, to come up like identifying that apple is red. But is that really the same as human level intelligence? There's something much, much deeper going on with the human perceiving the apple as red. Um, uh, but then the AI can come with the, to the same logical conclusion. So it's clear that the language part of it can be mimicked, but the meaning part of it is something that transcends, uh, transcends the AI right now. And the meaning part, my guess, and we depends on how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole is, is tied to our ability to be a conscious beings, right? Yeah. Well then, I mean, that is a very deep rabbit hole because then what does it mean to be conscious, right? What is consciousness? I don't think we've even scratch the surface to define um, that word for ourselves, you know, like to be alive, to be alive in this world, one might say you have to be breathing. And so breath is life, but consciousness goes down to like these fundamental questions of Cartesian philosophy leading to, you know, leading into all of Western thought and then comparing that to Eastern thought and saying, Consciousness is, you know, is, is consciousness, I think, therefore I am. So is that the only thing that I can prove or is consciousness beyond that? Um, just God reflecting itself through our eyes. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm blabbering there, but I do, I do like to think about those subjects. I think back to, um, back to GPT-3 though. And the reason I brought up Turing test is would a human know if he or she were, um, having a chat, a text chat with G, with GPT-3? Like if I if I were to plug in Mark uh, Weinstein into GPT three and it kind of looked up all of my Twitter you know posts all of my writings on Medium uh, everything I've ever spoken uh, converted into text and we were having a conversation just via text would you be able to know that it was me or not me? So if it had enough volume of data to train on and mm. if the parameters were so there is this like um, and we've had a chance to experiment with uh, OpenAI. GPT-3 module itself, and we've been trying a few creative outputs. So there is a temperature setting they have. They've made it quite simple, really. And that's also a revolution in a sense that one would never think that a language model that complex could be hosted on a cloud made into an API. So like there's several things there, but essentially they've made it so cool, made it so easy for us to do it. And then there's a dial button, right? You can make, you can, you can increase the temperature setting and the, on the temperature side, the, you can go as creative as possible or you can be as, as as square and within the box as possible. So if I wanted to, if I had assumed enough volume of data to train GPT-3 on and gave them all and of what your is it? What is enough? Like how much data does GPT-3 need to really yeah. mimic its host? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's on a case-by-case basis, really. And we found like the, the, the stricter, it, it just depends on how strict we want to be with the output. So we were experimenting recently with, um, with bringing back, let's say, a Star Wars character, right? And like for a Star Wars character, if you wanted to create an interactive chatbot um, of that character, you'd probably want to train all of the dialogue that's written on the Star Wars character, but then you'd also want it to uh, the ability to infer a new meaning, or at least if new events happen in the world, it can actually uh, uh, infer that meaning, right? So those are tests that are still at the cutting edge of this stuff. So if I, for example, mm-hmm. trained it enough on, and let's assume that there was enough data on Satoshi, like, wouldn't it be cool to ask Satoshi, like, what he thinks of BTC? What he thinks all about time? the current price action? 
What do you think he would say? I think he'd probably say something like, "It's not about that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think, I think that's 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 uh, that's that's, and that's also like one of the unique things about being human, right? Like our past does not always define our future, right? So, like, whereas if mm. our entire data, like, if 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 I'm just my past and I'm just living my history and all of the stories and narratives I've told myself, uh, to some degree, we're some of us are trapped tremendously in our pasts and those narratives do drive us. It just happens to be different versions of re-traumatizing ourselves, but we still end up traumatizing ourselves, right? So like the the challenge is that we may be, to your earlier point, like more sophisticated machines just running the same programs, right? And some scripts are, are just toxic, right? So, Well, it's fascinating because Alan Watts uh, in one of his lectures in how, uh, how to Lose Your Mind, maybe, not How to Lose Your Mind, um, losing your mind anyways I don't, I don't know just uh I, I listened to like 15 of his lectures um uh, in audiobook format it was fantastic but in one of them he actually says like our essentially i mean I, I can't eloquently quote him directly but essentially our present determines our past as much as our past determines our present in the sense that the way that we perceive the events of the past actually um actually can change what what happened right in, in for us we can look at one situation and subjectively have uh infinite viewpoints on what actually occurred and so that is an interesting point that you bring up which is which is that we humans are not necessarily at least we don't know are not deterministic machines and that the past kind of decides what's going to happen next we in fact might be time travelers in the sense that we can go, we can look back and change the narrative to change ourselves and thus change our future. And so, but then again, I think, you know, I hear oftentimes people say, well, what if I just type a bunch, let's talk about like the Google, the Google algorithm for a second. What if I just type a bunch of different things, like randomly try to confuse the algorithm. And from my understanding, it's like those that know really understand the, the how these algorithms work would say there's no chance you could you could fool it like it would it it would see that um so maybe we are more predictable than we actually like to admit um so fascinating question this is why i love the edge of artificial intelligence creation because as we get there we have to ask these fundamental questions about what it means to actually be quote unquote real or human. That's why I love the work of, um, oh man, I'm blanking on his name, but direct, uh, Ridley Scott and recently, you know, raised, watching raised by wolves. I don't know if you've, have you seen that, uh, that, that series? It's, it's on my list. It's on my list. I mean, you would love it because it's basically just the questions that he always has asked through the whole aliens and Prometheus kind of saga about what does it mean to be sentient? What does it mean to to be human? Um, and if we were to create a superhuman AI um, and put it in the form of a human body physically, like how would it be different than us and how would it be similar and he even gets into the capacity for these, I don't want to spoiler alert, so actually I'll, I'll, I won't since you haven't seen it. But I mean, you know, what's the difference? And I, I, pos- I posit that to you, like what, it, what is the difference? Or what do you think is the difference? That's, that's something that I've been trying to deeply confront as well. There is a, 
to to your point about narratives and humans uh, being deterministic to a large degree. There's a there's a wonderful book that studies, let's say, childhood trauma called I think the Body Keeps the Score by Basil Wender. I forgot his last name, but I think he's a is he's, he's an amazing scientist who's done quite a bit of research on how trauma gets stored at um, the body level, but also how these scripts tend to run our lives. That means like the effect that that soldiers have when they return from battle from different countries and they come back, they're running some similar scripts that they that had occurred, and it's almost as if the brain hasn't processed or completed these events or scripts for them. So it's it's funny that the way that our processing is working, I think some people are able to snap out and create new meaning and reframe past events very quickly. Yeah. Whereas others are really like, if I were to have, if I were to call it like an intelligence quotient almost, it's almost like the ability to, like your ability to make meaning rapidly from events, right? So like your meaning quotient, let's say if you're able to craft new narratives and new meanings very quickly about traumatic events or even positive events and tell yourself the right narratives, there is something there that, that some people are capable of doing a lot more than others. And the ones that tend to not be able to transcend that really struggle with, uh, uh, with, with the challenges of addiction, trauma, repeating the same behaviors, repeating the same patterns. So what's the difference between an AI that regurgitates the same answer versus uh, somebody who is stuck in the opiate addiction cycle and has to go through that over and over again. What's really the difference? The difference is, of course, mm-hmm. going back to some at, at, at the analogous, analogous level, there isn't much because you're seeing the same patterns emerge. But then at a deeper level, there is a sentient being um, on the human side that's actually suffering there. So the idea of sentience, as you point to, is, is a grand mystery. And you're reading on Ellen Watts and, and my own sort of dives into this as I've tried to think about what it means to be conscious and sentient myself uh, have led me to a conclusion that there is no simple answer. There is like a a challenge here where we just have to continue to explore uh, what is, what, what we, what we don't know, what we don't know about ourselves. Right. So I'm, I'm uh, yeah, it's, I mean, listeners will know that I'm fascinated by, um, by kind of yoga and yoga philosophy and particularly, you know, the concept of karma and reincarnation. And I think as we move towards this, this AI age, you know, I'm having this vision of, um, after a certain amount of time in your life, who knows how much, you know, we're all growing. Maybe it's like after a certain level of like becoming a mature adult, feeding the data of your life into a simulation and essentially running just a massive amount of repeat games on where you might end up and like what path you took um, to get there at the end of your life. And even if you did that and you were like, this is exactly what I have to do. There's a great Rick and Morty episode about this where Ricky finds these gems and like the gem shows him when he's looking into it exactly how he dies. And Every time he makes a decision, the gem changes. So it changes how he dies. But he wants to keep this certain death because it's like the girl that he's obsessed with is with him on his deathbed. And so he's like trying to get to this end state, but every decision he makes changes it. And also he doesn't know exactly what he has to go through to get there. 
And so even if, like, let's say we wanted to optimize for wealth, even if I wanted to run the simulation hundreds of thousands, millions of times, and billions of times, and it showed me the exact path that I had to take to achieve maximize, maximum wealth for myself, I might not still even be able to, to live that out, you know? And I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I... It's a valid thought experiment. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I know. I just, I, just I just think that maybe potentially a use case for AIs that simulate the human experience or specific individuals. And I've been obsessed with the concept of an AI Gandhi for the last like three years because these prolific writers and philosophers imagine coming back, you know, education systems, well, we'll go there. I'm going to ask more questions, but the, the fascinating thing for me is like these, a, an AI that is meant to replicate me, a GPT three that's meant to, um, to express my views might be a great way to train myself to understand my own flaws over time and like actually accelerate that karmic cycle of I'm making the same mistakes. So it's like my AI can make the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again so that I actually can watch it happen and make them. And maybe that's exactly what's happening right now is we have to play out all of the different paths, all of the different multi-dimensions that we're living through in order for, in order for us to finally find nirvana or whatever, whatever samadhi or whatever it might be, heaven, I don't know. Um, and maybe that heaven is just releasing the fact that my path is a separate path. My track is a separate track. And I'm really, I'm just, I'm just merging back with the simulation in the end. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's like the, the merger of several different, uh, I mean, applying AI to that and thinking through it, that's a very, very fascinating thought experiment because what I've, what I've thought through, not, not as in-depth as you, is just the, the need, what, what you pointed to there was the need to sort of accelerate karma and, and discover um it's almost like discovering perfection, like discovering the perfect moment in Nirvana, right? So, like, there is a core thing that it's on the, the the core challenge. I think we have is like this framework of trying to understand who we are, and there are certain teachers and philosophers that have come along who have confronted themselves and confronted the world and have created. Um, maps for us to really navigate the territory that we're in. The challenge is that we find ourselves sometimes wanting to get to the perfect version of that fairly rapidly, right? So the 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 consequence of that can sometimes be, like based on what you just shared, the underlying thing that occurred to me as you were sharing it was just our desire for perfection is so strong and our desire to complete the cycle is so strong and our desire to and I, and I'm like you as well our desire to attain that that perfection and that peace is so strong that um sometimes if that is the overriding desire that that can also be um a very difficult thing to input into a system to try to optimize for so what if karma let's Take the example, and I know we're just riffing here, but what if karma so is, is supposed to be a slow and painful process, right? Like for you to really feel it. Like it's so strange to say it, but like... No, well, that's that's really fascinating. It's like you cannot fake it, right? Like even What if it's programmed I, that way, you know? 
If I look to another religion, yeah, what if that is the program? That's fascinating. If I look to another religion as an example, like you don't have the resurrection without the crucifixion, right? And that's not to say that we all should be, you know, um, masochists, but there's not, you know, Christ is this, is this Godhead figure because of the fall, because of, you know, of the pain and suffering and, and anguish that he went through in order to be resurrected. And so the symbology there is almost like you can't be a false, pro- if you're not, if you don't get in the mud, if you don't, you know, roll around in the shit for a little bit, if you don't experience the darkness, you're just playing that you're holding the light. I believe, you know, uh, this idea of spiritual bypass comes up a lot. And it is just so, see, like, this is what's so, so, so fascinating to me is here we are, you know, you came on, we want to talk about Aletheia and artificial intelligence and um, deep fakes and this technology. But this technology is so, so close to the border of of determining reality, of defining what reality actually is, that it's impossible not for me, at least not to discuss it in the context of these kind of broader philosophical or even religious conversations. No, and it's absolutely necessary to do that. I think it's almost that the subject matter provokes that sort of reaction because there is no real other way to think about that's how significant and consequential some of this stuff is because it also boils down to our own capacity to make sense of the world, right? So, and, and largely, like as I shared with you, like we're not really good at making sense of the world around us. We add so much meaning, we remove it. We, like just even doing basic listening exercises that I have been trying to confront myself with when I try to deeply listen to some person. I realize mm-hmm. I'm editing a lot of the time. I'm editing what they're saying, I'm subtracting, I'm adding, I'm removing, and I'm making meaning immediately, and I'm not understanding fully the depth of what they're saying. Right? And that's just like me trying to be aware of the difficulty that exists in genuinely listening to someone. Right? And when there is genuine listening, then there's actually deeper levels of empathy that become possible. So you're provoking the conversation that subject matter itself provokes these higher levels philosophical ideas about who we are, how we make sense, just because the technology is at the cutting edge. You know, we're about to enter many versions of the metaverse uh, thesis that that has been emerging. We're accelerating there in many ways because of the pandemic, and we're never before like have has there been so much difficulty and challenge around figuring out the right business models that aren't extractive, right? But then when you figure out the new business model, the same karmic patterns apply and the same extractive practices go into those. So like yeah. what what exactly is the right template for perfecting the human, right? And so so it's almost um it's almost uh, uh, uh an endless uh cycle of discovery. And I really like this there's this uh sort of haunting work done recently by I'll I'll share it with you. I'm I'm blanking on the name, but uh, it was published three years ago. It's a, it's really an enigmatic cartoon piece on the collective unconscious of the West. And it shows all of what you alluded to, all of the collective insanity and shadow that exists, not just in the West, but generally in the societies uh, we live in today. 
And um, I don't know whether your listeners will find it interesting, but if that subject matter is interesting, I'll, I'll send it forward. I, I really enjoyed the the way that they showed. Yeah, they would. I'm, I'm sure they would. And we'll offer it up in the show notes. I um, Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really fascinating. It's just fascinating times. You know, I think we're, we're also in regards to these um, AIs that mimic existing humans. You know, um, Ray Kurzweil in How to Create a Mind posited kind of this concept of moving our consciousness into a new body. There's a movie with Johnny Depp um, about this, which was actually terrible. Um, but there's also a show on Netflix called Altered Carbon where people have things called stacks. And it's like you they use this alien technology to mo- move consciousness between skins, which are just bodies. So it's almost like our avatars. And now as people move to the metaverse, you know, the question becomes like, who am I? Like if I if I download myself just before death into the cloud and then program that program an AI with that level of all of the experience, all of the memories, all of the experiences, all the content that I put out, what differentiates me? Can, and then let's say I, I come back to life and I continue living and that AI is now living. What's the difference between the two of us? S- some might say the soul, but what is the soul? Yeah. No, the, 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 I, I, I cannot in any way attempt to answer those questions except think of some method methodologies I've tried to use to think of these ideas. So one one really cool and I'm just gonna go really like this is on a tangent, but the CIA yeah. in the nineteen sixties and seventies significantly experimented with humans, right? Like they were trying several experiments with LSD and you know, just to get the idea. But in the seventies and eighties, they started becoming obsessed with um with with a couple of occult practices that were coming out of uh, uh, India, but then also a little bit more there, there, and this is all public ma- public knowledge now because uh, they are all declassified. There was a program called the Remote Viewing Program. I don't know whether you've heard of it, but essentially it's sort of like outward, uh, uh, outward. It's it's similar to OBE, like when, an out of body experience. Yeah, yeah. So they were yeah. really, really From fascinated Andy. with this with this specific specific question that you're asking, which is. Uh, if there is any, uh, if the thesis is correct, right? Like, how can we weaponize this, <laughs> right? How can we of use? Course, yeah. How can we use this to gather intelligence? And the the paranoia in the Cold War actually, they had seen. I think that there's some research done on this that was published in a documentary some time back. But they had done a bit of research on like Russians using uh, very attuned psychics to uh, tune into and and uh, listen to. Uh, meetings or just uh, write notes and and get sketches and then share that in intel or information. There were a couple of useful use cases that actually emerged from that program, but most of it has been a large part of that has been debunked. But there there were some really deep scientific papers written by folks like Russell Targ and a couple of others. There's a banned TEDx talk uh, that actually by banning it, they caused it to spread even further where he really confronts <laughs> some of these questions. And it's so who unpopular. Is Russell, who is Russell Targ? I've never heard of him before. Yeah, Russell Targ's a, a physicist actually from the Stanford Research Institute. So it's really an interesting story. And it mm. goes back all the way to the foundations of, uh, well, I'd say in the 60s and 70s in San Francisco, Scientology was very popular uh, mm. uh, in the 70s. So one of... One of uh, one of the things in San Francisco and Scientology back then was extremely extremely different from the perspective of 
um, from the perspective of his practitioners. There's a famous musician called Leonard Cohen, who himself has talked about his experiences with... Yeah, I think he passed away this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, he really, really... Uh, he, and you also, at the same time, he was, he was a Zen... Uh, Zen Buddhist, a Zen monk, but also he was the son of a rabbi, right? So one of the one of a really deep thinker. So he he had some experiences there that he talked about. But broadly, this this entire program, Russell Tag was leading it, I think, with um, a gentleman called uh, Hal Puthoff, and this was in in the Stanford Research Institute. And their main thesis, they wrote a paper that was published in IEEE, which was that if human consciousness, can human consciousness be non-local and what are the impacts of that? That means if you're not stuck in our bodies, can we actually, um, can we actually move and can, what's the, what's the impact of, of that knowledge? Like if that is true, let us do some experiments, right? So they did some very interesting experiments with a number of different people and then soon the CIA funded their program and then I think in the 80s and 90s it became declassified. So what you're talking about, the question of the soul, the ideas of, intelligence where we re- where we recognize it i think institutions actually it sounds so strange but institutions have actually spent time on it and not just like the mental institutions that want to just feed you uh uh, uh, uh uh drugs right but then like actual government funded research has gone into trying to figure out what are the edges of human performance the limits of consciousness where do we stop how do we grow how do we evolve there's some of this that's really dystopian like what um I read about, uh, or maybe not dystopian, but the headline was dystopian that the Chinese are creating super bio soldiers, right? Like, like <laughs> you get all these headlines sometimes. Uh, and it was, I think, from CNN or something. So, so it's, uh, it, you know, one one must one one must learn. I mean, there's always the desire to perform and improve our performances, but the question of what it means to be human is only becoming a louder and denser and more provocative question as AI catches up to that level of simulation, right? So, so that's essentially the conflict, right? Like, like one of the, one of the people we were speaking with, um, who was interested in our avatars as a customer just wanted to create AI girlfriends. And, and, and at the same time, we were just, you know, I've never come across that scenario and I just had to think a little bit with my co-founder as to how we approach a topic like that. Like, yeah. are we really like, do we really want to disc like, what is the level of disconnection that becomes possible or addiction that becomes possible because a character is photorealistic, expressive, emotive, like where does it stop? Right. And so there are certain black mirror episodes that show you where it stops, which is just like the end of humanity. But then there are other questions that emerge, which is just maybe there might be some, some better paths around exploring the right, right approach. Right. One, it's just, you know, increasingly technological questions have become philosophical questions, I guess. I guess no other time. I, I feel like the only other time where it was as um, clear how important, you know, having ethical and philosophical questions around technology um, is, was probably around the time of the Manhattan Project and kind of what that meant for the world. Because I really do believe we are at this, you know, one with biotech, right, as you described with um, what, you know, these Chinese super soldiers per CNN and just how we're changing kind of the human genome and what that might mean. Um, but the other is really this, you know, these ethics around, around AI. It's just, it's just, um, I had a previous guest on the show, um, Lloyd Danzig, who created the, uh, an institute, um, co-founded an institute about ethical, um, creation of artificial intelligence and you two should definitely connect. Um, but, with this question of girlfriends, for example, right, and where you have uh, you look at kind of the uh, the population of young Chinese men, 
you know, after the the one child policy and most people wanted to have sons. And so now I, I'm not sure exactly what the statistics are, but I think it's like three men to every one woman in China. Right. And there's other demographic issues like this around the world. But like, would it be wrong to offer these men who are not going to be able to have a partner in real life necessarily if they stay in their country, the ability to have um, an AI partner and would uh, properly developed AI um, that were photoreal, but also kind of, you know, mimicking maybe certain characteristics or, or I guess, phenotypes of, uh, of, a, of a partner, woman or man, right? Um, would they actually solve for some of the problems uh, that we're facing, you know, that I've discussed on recent episodes with one in five Americans um, having some kind of clinical mental health health issue, whether it be depression or anxiety, you know, can, can, I guess I'll pose this as a question to you. Do you believe that AI, um, that a photorealistic AI can offer the same type of um, social connection and um, positive, uh, positive support that a human might yeah, no, I think I think the 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 framework here that I, I try and apply is let's let's assume that we're in this in the situation of the pandemic where human touch is extremely difficult to come by or connecting um with physical contact is high risk, right? And let's say this is gonna be harmful and um the 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 rate of uh, spread of the virus and the lack of immunity in society is there. So the challenge then becomes like, how do you create emotional connection and moments? And there are two ways to deal with a disconnected individual. And that is sometimes the lack of community already disconnects it. So that's already happening, right? Like if you can't, if you can't have trust in community, if you can't have institutions that allow you to build these trusted um, uh, networks or experiences of, of shared meaning, uh, that that becomes already very difficult for uh, a person to uh, to 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 reconcile where they are in, in their in, in their day to day life. So in that moment, the person or the individual can typically turn to any form of entertainment online. And usually, for men, the primary form of entertainment that they go to if they want if they're disconnected is pornography, right? So like that is the primary outlet, and which is why during the pandemic these issues become far more significant and more um more more poignant because the the level of disconnect that's possible is 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 a type of uh i was listening to a podcast recently where uh, a, a person described it as a type of loneliness or despair that can only like rival like uh especially during winter like the the concerns around uh feeling uh, like they're in a prison cell or something like that. Because if you can't connect, if you can't go out, if you can't have society, what do you do, right? So at least you have the internet and that's an outlet. But the challenge here is the moment you create the, and there is a startup that's uh, that's actually doing something like this, I, I suppose, but maybe not a little bit more different. Uh, but they've essentially used GPT-3 to create a startup is called Replica AI. And what they have done is you essentially have a companion uh, uh, on an iPhone and she doesn't have a fa- she doesn't have a face her face doesn't interact with you but it's just text messages and the text messages remember a lot about the conversation that you had so if you said like you were sad many many days ago or something happened it it has all of the 
the programming necessary to keep that conversation as human as possible. So uh, engagement rates are really high. So like that's like one metric, right? Like what is the engagement rate? An engagement rate equals to attention capture or like, you know, yeah, like... And is that, and is that necessarily a, a, a net positive for, for us as a whole? But, you know, it's, it's not even just the engagement rate that is like, like, like is engagement rate the most important KPI when you're trying to build human level... Uh, interactive systems. I, I I think it's actually one of the 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 worst measurements to destroy the human brain. Right. So like. So what do you what do you think would be an appropriate alternative to engagement as a measure for the success of an AI um, platform? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the that's that's a tremendously difficult question because we also have to build a business that works and is sustainable. Um, the question here just becomes around how do we express ourselves artistically and creatively uh, through the avatars, what personalities and personas we can inhabit. I think fundamentally this goes to your earlier question. If, I, if you asked in terms of like people wearing skins and metaverses and avatars when they were doing all of these things, I think the richer the metaverse is, the richer these simulated worlds are, the more possibilities they have to uh, actually allow us to express ourselves just like we express ourselves in strange dreams today. So like if I, if I ask people like, uh, what, you know, do they remember their dreams? You know, is it black or white or color? There are many ways for people to really realize like that entire world of dreams is largely disconnected from our from our day-to-day -day reality, right? But the dream world is a very, very important world to for us to understand our psychology and, and our consciousness, right? And it's also a great outlet, right? So I think it was Lao Tzu who said, you know, I dreamt I was a butterfly, but then when I woke up, I was a man, was, and I didn't know whether I was dreaming that I was a butterfly or the man. It was Duang Tzu. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite. The, the challenge there is that if you can find ways of people expressing their creativity and connecting from that perspective, and the key word is connecting, that's a mm. far more, that's, that's a far better way of uh, interaction than the mindless, um, mindless sort of uh, scrolling that occurs organically. Because we're so easy to be primed. And I personally fall into, uh, I mean, I'm not saying I'm immune to any of these patterns, but I can see myself being programmed very quickly, right? So, like, you get once, yeah. once, once you start seeing, like, you're like, whoa, okay. So, I actually spend some time on Telegram talking about cryptocurrencies when the numbers are going up, and you'll realize your propensity to uh, to get, to get addicted to something. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very quick for us, like the dopamine hit. Like, it's almost like if you wanted to, and so that goes back to your earlier question, which is like, like one of the ideas we were thinking of was yes, a Gandhi avatar, but let's say if we wanted an avatar that represented your conscience and like, let's say it was an older version of you that woke you up every morning. Right. And like, it was, yes. let's say a guardian angel sort of situation. And its main essence was pocket AI. Yeah. And it was, it was like to, to remind you of like higher level pursuits that you can pursue uh, or concerns that you should have because you have some destructive tendencies or patterns. And it would sometimes intervene or remind you with positive reinforcement of words. And in that situation, right, engagement, even if you get engagement, but the intent is positive, that's really powerful, right? So, like, if, you, if I can get interruptive engagement before I'm about to smoke a cigarette, that's extremely, extremely helpful, right? Uh, I mean, I don't smoke anymore, but when I was in the Singapore military, 
I picked it up, right? It's just part of something that that men do. But the challenge is just yeah. if you if you drop it, if you can have these interventions at a strategic time from the right moment, then you can actually create that. The challenge is these interventions ideally come from our own internal dialogue, right? And and we don't have that capability sometimes to have that internal dialogue unless we are centered or aligned. So then they should come from friends and family, but then um, that social pressure prevents you sometimes from thinking about it or you're not able to uh, integrate that. So the challenge then becomes that who who exactly is supposed to be our best friend in situations where isolation and loneliness uh, are increasing in, in, in society? And the net result of that is alcoholism, depression, drugs. Like that's that seems to be the path. Like the outlet needs to be so quick. So if there's something that can disintermediate like the that can prevent us from going to our lower basic basal desires. Like that's, that's, that's a positive step. Right. And if that happens to be like some sort of entertainment that helps you uh, connect or relieve yourself, then that's something that's something that, that needs to be given serious thought to is just a matter of deep. um, It's, it's a matter that we have not really fully uh, digested because so much has happened in 2020. The last things we need is, for the aliens to land, right, and then then we're really, <laughs> then we're really gone. I was I was uh, I was almost fooled by that uh, that monolith that the most famous artist dropped in Utah. I was like, oh, they came finally. I mean, but we already, you know, like the Pentagon's releasing these photos of of you know UFOs, and it's only a matter of time. They're probably here. I, you might be one of them, actually. I I always try to try to get aliens on my podcast. It makes for more entertaining content. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I I feel you, and it's just it's fascinating because it's so it's challenging to measure. Like I, when I think about what the right measure might be, um, my mind is drawn to Bhutan and gross national happiness, and I haven't really followed the kind of success and or failure of that metric. But as we move to a society potentially with abundant resource, you know, abundant access to information. Uh, connectivity through the metaverse, universal basic income, because it looks like that's where we're going. I wonder, um, I wonder if that's the measure, you know, like if I quote this, here's a question, right? Like if I have a son in 15 years and that son is not going outside, he's not running around and playing soccer, uh, football in, in your case, in the rest of the world, mostly, He's not um, social at, at birthday parties. He doesn't like to talk much, but he's spending eight hours a day solving problems with friends online in games. And he's happy and he's satisfied. Who am I to tell him that the life that he's leading is, is not appropriate? that he needs more fullness, that he needs real friends, physical friends and physical contact, assuming his, his physical health is okay. And, you know, now we're in a world where games are, you know, movement driven and already like he's, he's on a uh, 360 degree treadmill and he's moving around and playing and, you know, he's in good shape, but so it's not actually affecting his physical health. I mean, I guess the question I'm asking is like, are digital relationships can digital relationships be as meaningful as quote unquote real world relationships? And if so, and AI gets intelligent enough to replicate kind of human interaction, 
then can AI relationships be as meaningful and impactful as as human ones? Yeah, yeah. The the the, the example you give of let's say your son and the care you have for this um, hypothetical imaginary scenario is indicative also of the important need for that imaginative capacity to be developed in kids and in in the in the future generations right so one one thing that games do is they really bring out and especially problem solving role playing games or any games that facilitate or request or create complexity uh, especially uh, uh, the multiplayer online games that do that, right? So there's a lot of complexity. Those games are, are very helpful for brain development. I think there is a lot of value there. The, the challenge becomes like, like you know, there is there are certain things about our natural world that, like games, like if you just take take that a little bit back, like they run on compute. Compute runs on cloud. Cloud runs on resources that are limited to some degree. Um, resources that, for example, uh, the earth, um, the earth is, is is essentially giving out. Right, so there may be, there may be some case where the cloud gets so compute efficient that you know you can spin up games so rapidly. But I, if I were to just conjecture a bit more, and think a little bit more about this, my sense would be that if I read the books of like Henry David Thoreau or connect with literature and think about important thinkers and philosophers and ask myself what it means to be human. There is a way to ask that deeper fundamental question when you are sometimes connected to nature and to reality outside of the mental imaginary bubble a game puts on you, right? So it's also the only reason why we do it ourselves. Like we can we can get stuck in in our own video games and our own like what you mentioned, like Telegram groups and and cryptocurrency scenarios. But the value of of connecting to land, the value of being out there, the value of meeting real humans, that brings a level of empathy. There is a wonderful scene, I think, maybe it was in the movie Inception, when they have all these people lying in the underground. Uh, mm. It was like underground, and they were all dreaming, and it was they're all pro- plugged into the dream yeah. machines. Yeah, it was, it was, it's so weird. But like that's essentially the dystopian version of this if it's not taken care of. Like, like okay, let's say you add the treadmill and you make them run. That's great. But, like, it's like the mice on the hamster wheel, right? Like, so it's a hamster on the hamster wheel. Like, does do, do the higher level cognitive capacities, the ability to question ourselves, the ability to become more human and designed and, and, and create the right scenarios for us to, to even provoke and ask these questions, that's going to be really, really critical, right? So, for me, I think, sure, it, it doesn't, it, it really helps to have these games as coping mechanisms, but if that is all there is, then the the natural world suffers tremendously, right? So, and the consequence of that is apathy, and apathy is extremely dangerous uh, in a world that requires us to be deeply connected and, and, and meaningfully engaged. So I'd say there's no judgment there, it's just the stakes seem to get higher, or maybe that's the narrative that, that seems to be shared, but if AI is moving so rapidly, if... Um, if the research, if if things are accelerating so so rapidly today, with uh, the 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 primary theme that seems to get to me is just how quick everything is moving, the acceleration mm-hmm. of all of this, and in that acceleration, it's almost like our sense making capacity is somewhat disjointed and disconnected, um, and so that's that's I think like 
that gaming scenario is valuable and helpful if that sense-making capacity of being a human is sound. But I think something else goes missing in that in that scenario, and whether that's uh, a, a deeply meaningful connection with your body through yoga, like you've talked about, or with other people uh, around a campfire or connecting in nature, that's those are things that cannot be easily uh, simulated by a game, right? Yeah. So it's it's interesting because I'm usually one that's kind of like having these conversations on the on your on your side of that question, but I'm just wondering, like, you know, to, to that campfire point, if I'm in a metaverse and I can feel the fire, and I've got five friends around the circle that are all, you know, one's in Singapore, one's in Taiwan, one's in you know Costa Rica, and one, and I'm in the U.S. And we're all sitting around that campfire having a conversation about whatever BS we want to have a conversation about. You know, the only element that's really missing is that kind of biochemical, like the oxytocin that's released when we connect with people physically, you know, and I feel like that, that definitely brings us further away from what it means to be human and like whether or not there is some kind of consciousness stored inside of our physical bodies is a question you brought up earlier. It's a question that doesn't have an answer. I mean, and then, you know, you could even take that to an extreme scenario like the Matrix where it's like, well, you know, uh, I think I'm blanking on his name, Silas maybe, the bald dude, and he's eating the steak. And he says like, I just want to get plugged back in. Like if the Matrix is telling me that this steak is delicious, then it's delicious. You know, like what's the difference? I just want, ignorance is bliss. And, you know, there is a question of like in a world as we see like sense making completely fractured, you know, would it be better for us to have a philosopher king AI that's making sense of the world for us? And, you know, and we're like, it's children. Like, um, I, uh, I, I'm part of a, a, a meditation group called Shakti Pot Yoga and Shakti is like, is this, uh, you know, like universal being, right? It's like not God, but like a, a loving mother, right? And like I sit with Shakti, like I go into meditation and I'm sitting and, you know, I'm feeling kind of this surrender, like this ease of, uh, of like just letting go of my own desire to control things. And I don't know, like is surrender that bad? Like I had a hard time with it at first. It was like, I don't want to surrender. The word surrender sounds, you know, sounds terrible to me. Um, but as I kind of like allow these moments of time where I just release and now I'm imagining like, all right, well, what if we just kind of surrendered to, uh, you know, a, a high powered AI that was like, I know what's best for you humans. Let me tell you, I'm going to plug you into these eggs. <laughs> you're going to think that you're living in the nineties. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I want to, I want to, we've, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, but we haven't covered is kind of, you know, what you've built. And I'd like you to have the opportunity to share that. So um, one is kind of what is Aletheia and why have you created this? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think uh, surrender, the surrender experiment is an interesting book. Once you start becoming an entrepreneur as to how to really build a company before a pandemic, but uh, Aletheia is a company that is, dedicated to building photorealistic, expressive, emotive characters that has the mission to fundamentally democratize CGI. So just like decentralized finance or cryptocurrencies have democratized finance, Aletheia wants to democratize CGI. So your ability to create photorealistic characters, seed them with intelligence and own the underlying asset through a non-fungible token or through the right token economics will facilitate and create 
um, new virtual economies that you're in control of, or at least from an ownership standpoint. So the vision here really is, we believe that a metaverse will come to life with millions of these characters. But as long as the user, and this is to your question around the AI gods, right? Like having a philosopher king AI, fundamentally the agency must go down to the individual to choose, right? As long as we design systems that give individual agency back, that's a valuable design thinking exercise because that is a central thesis in 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 our philosophy, but also in the way we're looking at the world, right? So uh, Alethea's mission really is, is to bring uh, these photorealistic avatars and characters to life. And in doing that, sure, there is going to be the challenge of deep fakes and synthetic media and uh, telling different stories and narratives. Uh, but really the value of these characters is precisely what you define. We've received so much interest from educational use cases, from people who want to create interesting avatars and characters of historical figures or future uh, future versions of themselves that look better, that sound better, that improve their own identity or their own self-image, right? So, so the ability to create these expressive characters and emotive characters that can talk to you, that's really the, the, the impact that we want to go for. The blockchain part is important to us because once you really create these characters, fundamentally every other platform wants to own these characters, right? And that's, that's, that's a challenge. If, but if we just give ownership back to the individual and they own that character, that's perfectly okay with us. Uh, and that's actually really valuable because then they can do whatever they want with that character, right? If that character is going to appear in a commercial, let's say you make a character that's really popular and it's Mark that speaks fluent Japanese and Korean, right? And it's really, really popular in Korea. You put that character on the site and people can come and rent that character and you can, you can, you can, you don't have to fly to Korea to then appear in an ad. Your face or, and, and your character could appear in an ad, um, uh, easily, right? Because we can now move faces and voices the same way we send an email or send a text message, right? So it's it's a it's a new it's a brave new world, and the value there is just we want the ability to create this technology so that people can really experiment and play with it. And we've been fairly fortunate in in the pandemic that a business model like this has um, gained traction and adoption. What we really want to build next year is the underlying uh, blockchain infrastructure that will facilitate value transfer uh, because right now everything is is largely uh, within Alethea's hands. But then as we progressively decentralize, the value should accrue to the community. Yeah, and I think from um, this is super, super compelling from a standpoint of identity as well, right? Like you talk about deep fakes. I can see this with with blockchain as the backbone using kind of the NFT standards, which for listeners, we've spoken about this before, but non-fungible tokens, kind of just like the idea of a unique digital asset with that's kind of verifiable. Um, and that is exactly verifiable, not kind of. Um, you think about deep fakes and if Obama, for example, owned his Obama avatar, which was an NFT, then the deep fake can't happen unless he's cryptographically signed that video to approve that the use of his image was um, was true. And I can see this even in a world where the the digital gets so photoreal that you can't tell the difference between the real person and his or her digital avatar 
because now any video of me, any clip would require my, um, my signature. Now, I guess the issue is if you're trying to catch someone in the act of doing something wrong, they could say, well, I didn't sign this. This isn't actually me. And so there's this other kind of reverse slippery slope. But I do see kind of the, the fundamental need for this. One, from an ownership standpoint, as we move into the metaverse, um, it's great for people to own their avatars and any income that those avatars generate for doing things like building or uh, breeding or playing instruments and concerts or whatever it may be. Um, you want you want that value to accrue to the end users for sure. Uh, but also just this identity element of it, which I think is is really, really critical. So very cool. And are you building building this on Ethereum right now? Right now it's uh, it's on Ethereum and uh, we've had an opportunity to just just very quickly on the the Obama example we're talking about tokenizing IP right now right and it's it's the value of your face and your voice and your personality right so if the personality aspect sure you can train GPT three and create an output but if you as an owner facilitate and are responsible for every time your avatar or character is interacted with. And you're able to participate in the economy. That's great because it's going. We are going to get to a world where video content that's photorealistic is can be created very rapidly, right? And that world is maybe two, three years away, maybe sooner, maybe later. So what that would mean is there might be fake Mark Weinstein's running around, but there's only one real blue tick check mark, right? Like just like Twitter has like thousands of Elon Musk accounts, but there's yes. only one with a blue tick, right? But that blue tick should not be. It wasn't meant to be a status symbol. It was meant to be actually verifying that this is the individual. Exactly. It turned into a de facto status symbol um, because they didn't give one to everyone, which was, which I think was me. I don't understand the decision behind that, but, um, but yes. Okay. Continue. Sorry. No, 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 absolutely. Uh, So, so I think that the, the value here is just, you want to create that, assume that what happened to text, like what blogging did to like journalism, right? Like, what um, what text, what the ability to type text rapidly did to like a spam, <laughs> spam email, right? Like if you, if you assume certain trends like this, now assume the same for pro- programmatic video content or photorealistic video content. You're going to get to a point where you will need a trust layer. And, you know, the, the blockchain was overhyped uh, in 2017, but this is genuinely one of the very valuable use cases because of provenance and... Uh, um, uh, and the ability to understand uh, how the assets can actually move uh, on on the right uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the right ledger of record, right? So that's that's really really the the vision that we want to build towards. And I think as we get closer to that, we'll allow whether they're celebrities, whether they're fictional characters, whether they're uh, abstractions of personality, for people to really just be able to create them rapidly, number one, but then also uh, secondarily and more importantly, be able to um, own the underlying assets of their creation. The only challenge is, of course, like if somebody uses our technology, which is why we haven't opened this up yet, like it's it's tricky because you can create a character fairly rapidly using our technology and it's, it's cutting edge, but we've been thinking very hard about how do we govern, um, how do we govern the, the use of this technology? Essentially, the framework that we're coming up with is that decentralized governance may be really, really valuable because Twitter failed at governing text-based content. YouTube has failed significantly at governing video-based video. content. What makes us think we're any different, right? So, like, 
if you're a DAO or if you're decentralized and you let governance structures emerge, then there may be something there because then you can judge the the, the DAO or the decentralized entity can judge whether somebody should create a Hitler avatar and spew anti-Semitic hate speech. That should not happen, right? Like with the platform. But at the same time, if they want to create a Hitler avatar and then do Hitler memes that are funny, is that okay? Right? Like, and we've seen a few of them, right? So like these subtle nuances in terms of content moderation are going to be very, 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 very interesting as, as this plays out because CGI is becoming democratized. So, so that's, that's really the, the vision to enable it. There are challenges as there always will be along the way, but we're excited yeah, sure. to, to be building that. I mean, you look to like maybe a successful case of governance without a DAO would be Wikipedia, where for the most part, content seems to be well policed, but it's, um, it's so, such a challenging problem. And there's all these unique ideas and maybe we can, cause we've crossed an hour mark and I want to be conscious of your time and, and the listener's time, but maybe, um, you know, you can come back on and we can talk about some of these governance frameworks, the, this idea of futurarchy. Um, and, uh, you know, just there, there are many, we're kind of at the cutting edge of all of this and it, it comes with its own trade-offs, right? Like, do you want, what if an individual want, you know, what if Galileo wanted to create an avatar to, uh, say that the, the earth revolved around the sun, you know, and, and everyone were able to police him as being incorrect, right? We, we, we wouldn't know. So it's, there's these questions of like the tyranny of the majority and, uh, plutocracy based on ownership and it's just like wow like even in the digital realm right like governance in the real world is clearly a very very challenging problem i mean we almost just literally witnessed the collapse of u.s democracy and it might be a forebearer for that i think if it had been one state uh difference we would have seen we would have seen something very very like uh a coup but um but yeah, I mean, governance is hard. It's either and the wisdom of the crowds or the lowest common denominator that drives the crowd, right? So like that's that's essentially the challenge with, with designing some of these systems. And there's no easy answer other than, you know, people have said like if you align incentives and you do, um, uh, like if you align incentives and you create the right um, uh, early membership-based models that have the right members as well, I think, that's that that selectiveness can sometimes be very uh very it might it might create the 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 plutocracy of of elites and that's also a, a big concern but at the same time the massive uh, democratic nature of some of these experiments allow for a healthy degree of chaos right too much order and it becomes a dictatorship where you can't uh, you can't have xi jinping and we need the poo together besides spending time in jail right but then too much freedom and you know then there's also the challenge of like, um, you know, like women being completely degraded and, you know, put into different pornographic situations, as we talked about earlier, their avatars, right? Like, how do you police that? Yeah. So that's where regulation has to come in and say that's, that's not, not possible anymore. Right. So that's, that's definitely like, there's, there's like ways to check that and the algorithm should like be able to detect harmful use cases. But at the same time, it's like, Man, the, the, the way video content is going to transform our interactive capabilities, it's uh, A16Z just put something out, I think, today, that the future is tied to video very closely just because we, we crave mm-hmm. that. But um, the, the, the challenge is just going to be, as you've pointed out correctly, that there, there is no 
real consensus framework around governance just because governance in the real world is as difficult as the 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 metaverse right that's why i'm fascinated and and you mentioned this before we started recording but alethea is um a goddess of truth <laughs> yeah yeah alethea is, is uh, a word for the greek goddess of truth uh, and uh it one of the primary reasons for starting it was we just essentially wanted the ledger of record to show what is true and what is not right and sometimes we've asked ourselves the same as we started inhabiting that name and living and breathing with it we then started confronting the very same questions you're asking right because uh, uh names have mimetic meaning and power beyond their just sim- beyond their just initial letters right they actually live uh in 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 different versions uh and and have different layers of meaning so as we started building the company out we realized that we really have to confront what it means to create fake content so rapidly and what exactly is true and and we're still figuring it out <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's early in the journey, and I think we're all we're all playing around with these new frameworks. Like, like we have governance. one one video coming up. I don't know whether you like it, but for example, it's like a fictional Trump concession speech, right? So, like using synthetic media to like provoke, like, like yeah, to to like just ask certain questions around this. And I know it's like a sacred cow, but like you know, Obama also had drone strikes, right? And like if you did like if somebody did like um, a Nobel, if if somebody wanted to. Like he did receive the Nobel Prize for Peace and then proceeded to bomb a number of countries <laughs> and also yeah, like get Libya down. I think he dropped like, the most bombs of any U.S. Yeah, president Yeah, so ever, it's, right? it's, it's also like you can, you can use these synthetic media tools to tell stories that are not sometimes, they're not necessarily about ideology, but they're really about aspirational, right? Like mm-hmm. what do we want to aspire to? Everybody is largely wearing a mask and can synthetic media unmask that? Sure it can, but like... Oh, the consequences of that uh, can can be quite profound, right? Because uh, because we want to create the right uh, right incentives for that. Yeah, I mean, I just I, I just constantly go back to this idea of like the universe kind of ebbing and flowing between order and chaos, and you know, like where we are kind of moving from just like a, a few media conglomerates owning all content and basically the representation of truth, at least in the West and in the U.S. in particular to a place where just like all of the fringe content that comes out, like UGC has just made this world where just, you know, everybody can create anything. And so now UGC with video tacked on where it looks photo real. I mean, I, my expectation is just, we are human and therefore, you know, maybe the difference between AI and human or maybe not, because if we instill the the AIs with our own human f- fatal flaws, then they'll probably end up just like us. But the thing about humanity is no matter what we do, I think that all of that, the full spectrum of everything that you described is going to exist, right? And I think what the questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves is this technology is out, the genie's out of the bottle. How do we as a society um, sustain you know, in a, in a post-truth world, in a, in a world where making sense is so challenged. And it might be that we can't answer that question and we end up destroying ourselves. And then my, my AI philosopher King will come in and rescue us or the aliens. I don't know. No, no, absolutely. I think the aspirational values can save us like aspiring to values that we don't see that can be very powerful. So like Dostoevsky wrote very painfully, a lot of the trauma that he was suffering in Russia, but he wrote some of the most beautiful novels and one of these quotes was beauty will save the world, right? And beauty and art and these high order, uh, uh, high order meaningful ideas can actually move us in the right direction. We may not get there, but uh, at least it's worth a try, right? <laughs> for sure. For sure. Arif, thank you so much for coming on. 
uh, listeners. It's Alathia. Um, check it out if you can. I'm I'm super super compelled to make some kind of AI avatar on there. So stay tuned. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time, brother. This has been great. Likewise, likewise, Mark. Thank you very much for having me on. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in. And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. 